parables are some of the Lord's most powerful teaching. Our Lord used this opportunity to be able to help men be able to see some very important details with regards to the kingdom and with regards to the way a person ought to live within the kingdom. Tonight, we're going to study the parable of the unforgiving servant. And the truth is, Jesus often dealt with people who had a wrong perception about themselves. They would look at themselves and they would think too highly of themselves, or they would think too lowly of others. In fact, Luke in chapter 18 and verse 19 spoke a parable about some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. They would look and say, Lord, you ought to be glad to have me as one of your children, as one of your servants. In Luke 7 and verse 39, we read that the Pharisee who had invited him saw him and spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You see, the attitude that was possessed by so many in the first century was, I look at you and you don't measure up. I look at myself and I'm someone to be respected and someone to be admired. And Luke 19 and verse 7 talking about the little man Zacchaeus. They all complained in saying, he's gone to be the guest with a man who is a sinner. The truth is, they didn't realize every person's home to whom Jesus went was a sinner. Forgiveness is so hard. Part of the reason is because feelings get involved and we have this idea that If I don't like you, or I don't like what you are doing, or I don't like how you have responded to me, I won't release you of the debt. I won't forgive you. Most of us find it much more natural to want to take revenge than to want to forgive. The kind that says, this person has done this to me, and I'm going to respond with vengeance. I'm going to show them how it feels. And we generally respond in the wrong way. This parable, which the Lord spoke in Matthew 18, is thought-provoking. In fact, not only is it thought-provoking, but I'd suggest to most of us, this parable is condemning. Because many of us do the same things. And in so doing, we're just as ungrateful as the one who was forgiven. Here's what I'd like for us to do tonight in our study. I'd like for us to go to Matthew 18 and see the context of the parable. There's so much in this chapter that relates to the theme. And then number two, I want us to look at the content of what Jesus said in the parable. And then finally, some cautions that are taught here, some warning signs, if you will. I think about the hurricane that was coming ashore in Texas yesterday. And I think about all the warnings that were issued and how some people listened to the warnings and they fled. 
Others listened to those same warnings and said, we're going to ride it out. Some of them wish they hadn't. We need to be the kind of people that listen to the warnings. Let's begin, first of all, and I want you to notice with me particularly the verses that precede the lesson text. It's found in chapter 18, verses 12 through 14. So Jesus puts it before them, and he asks the question, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and go to the mountains and seek that one that is straying? And if he should find it, Assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety and nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I want you to listen to that last sentence again. It's not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God doesn't want anyone to be lost. Okay, let's back up then. What does he mean when he talks about these little ones? Who are the little ones of whom he speaks? If you go back to the first part of the chapter, verses 2 through 5, I've tried to underline the event that is taking place and the little ones of whom he speaks. Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them. You see, the Lord used illustrations. In fact, I thought about tonight, if it hadn't been so obvious, about asking one of the little ones to come up here and stand. I didn't want to embarrass any of the little kids, but I know two or three, I think, that would have done it. I guess y'all can figure out who of the two or three I might would have asked to do it. Um, But Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. You see, the Lord was trying to teach a lesson about humility, about dependence, about innocence. And the Lord used the little child to say, this is what you have to be to be in the kingdom. But you see, the Lord was worried about what they were going to do. In verses 6 and 7, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him that a millstone should be hung around his neck, that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. Now for just a moment... I want you to focus on verse 6. Who causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Oh, you've seen a subtle shift, have you not? 
Because if I brought a little child up here, this little child would be innocent. This little child is not in the position to be a believer. This little child of which we speak is not of yet accountable age to understand the distinction between right versus wrong and therefore sin be involved. So the Lord has made a subtle shift from the physical little child to those who are young in the faith. See, what the Lord is concerned about, there's some folks that are being converted. There are some folks who are innocent in the Lord's church. And there's some people who are letting them fall through. Verse 11, Jesus said, The Son of Man is to come to save that which was lost. That's his mission, that's his goal. And so if it is that one sheep that goes astray, if it is that one little innocent believer in me who's been made to sin, the Lord says their soul is so important. And thus the parable of the lost sheep, the conclusion, God doesn't want anyone to perish. In fact, he's going to go after that little one. God's not going to be content with allowing some to just fall away, he is concerned with each. Now drop with me to verses 15 through 17. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you One or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like the heathen and the tax collector. I hope you see the the emphasis in this. If sin occurs, sin must be resolved. You don't allow... A little one, you don't allow one who is offended or the offender to get away with the sin. In fact, God not only places the responsibility upon the one who has been offended, but he also replaces the responsibility on the offender. Remember Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. You come to the present a gift to God. He said, you remember your brother has something against you? He said, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The message of this, I think, is abundantly clear. The worst possible way to handle sin is to ignore it. To act as if it doesn't exist. The sinner remains a sinner and therefore his soul will be lost and the offended develops hatred and holds a grudge and ends up losing his soul. And so now no longer is it just one who is lost but both who are lost. Now let's keep going in the context. Drop down with me now to verses 21 and 22. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord... How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say up to seven times, 
but up to 70 times 7. You see, Peter got the message. The message was that of forgiveness. The message was concern for the lost. And so Peter recognizes, well, what do I do if my brother comes to me and says, I'm sorry, I repent. How often should I forgive him? You see, the rabbis taught that you forgave a person once, you forgave a person twice, you forgave a person the three times, and then sort of like we would say today, three strikes and you're out. That the fourth time you are not under compulsion to forgive that person again. No further forgiveness is required. If you listen to Peter, he feels as if he is being magnanimous by saying, you know what? Three plus three is six, and I'll add one for good measure, the perfect number. Lord, should I do that to seven times? And you might think that Peter, much like the Pharisees, and thinking, oh, look how good I am at this. Lord, I'm a good forgiver. He says, I say not to you to seven times, but to 70 times seven. And it never fails. Every time I teach this, I'll always have somebody come. So I'm going to go ahead and say it now. So after services, you don't have to come up. Well, does that mean that 491 times I don't have to forgive? You know the answer to that. And I will say this. Peter said seven times in a day. Somebody sins against you 491 times in a day. I think I'd like to see that. No, I don't know. I wouldn't want to see that. But I think that would be ridiculous. The Lord chooses a high number so everybody knows that he's saying this is limitless. But then you go to verses 23 through 25. And Brother Kelly did a great job reading that just a few moments ago. And I I just want to draw two or three points out of this and then we'll start noticing the details. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. The kingdom of heaven is like. That's why this is a parable. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife, his children, and all that he had, and payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Of course, you know that the master forgave him, And then after that, in verse 28, he went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, laid his hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. Just like he did, the servant fell down at his feet and begged, saying, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. And he would not but went and threw him in prison till he should pay all the debt. 
fellow servants saw what was done. They were grieved by it. They came and told the master what had been done. You know that the master now calls that wicked servant in before him. And he says to him in verse 32, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry, delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. Now, um, when the Lord says the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom is the church. And in the church... God deals with us just like this master dealt with his servants. And you say, well, what does that mean? That means that there will be a day when there will be an accounting that takes place. You see, the king is going to settle accounts. That's a phrase that we find repeated in the Bible. For instance, Matthew 25, verse 19 After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. There you have the parable of the talents. You're going to see what a person did with what he had. Now the question I think all of us should ask is, when the Lord looks at me and what I have done, how well have I performed with what he gave me And did I discharge it properly? Now, most of us, when we read this, we see the word talent, and immediately to our mind comes this idea of ability. We say, oh, he's a talented person. Look at him, he can play the piano. Look at him, he can play sports. But in the Bible, a talent was an amount of money. Depended upon whether it was gold or silver, And there's a number of different ways that you could try to calculate this. And I will tell you, several times in the past, I've tried to calculate it. I go get the current price of gold, and I multiply 10,000 talents, and you come up with a large amount of money. You can take the daily wage comparison and compare it, but roughly, and I'm using the word roughly, this was about $1,000. So you can figure if the man owed 10,000 talents, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars in money today. Folks, that's not an insignificant amount of money. Some of you may live in a world like that. I don't. It's hard for me to even conceive of a million dollars. But this man owed a whole lot. Now, um, that's unpayable by a slave. Now, I'll tell you the first thing that pops in my mind as I'm reading through this every time is just how did he get that far in debt? Was it somewhere along the line this man accounted for and how much he had under his charge? I'd like for you to go with me to Luke chapter 12, and I think you might get a little bit of understanding here. In Luke chapter 12, verse 42, And the Lord said, Who is that faithful and wise steward 
whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Do you know after a person acquired a certain amount of wealth, they would travel. They would go various places. They would enjoy things. And they would find that one trusted servant that they could leave everything in their charge and know they'd take care of it. Verse 44, Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and he begins to beat the male and the female servants, he begins to eat, and drink, and be drunk. Now, it doesn't take a whole lot to figure out what's going on here. Now, the the servant who's been made the ruler is treating all of this as if it is his own. And whenever you find someone squandering it upon themselves, you know where this is going to lead. The master of that servant will come on a day in which he is not looking for him, and an hour in which he is not aware and he will cut him in two and upon him a portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or to do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. You see, this man who knew what he was supposed to be doing and did not do it. So if this master here who has 10,000 talents, this servant supposedly was trustworthy. And he comes and the the accounting is he doesn't have enough to pay what he is owing. What do you do? You're going to recover what you can recover. Even though he's a slave, you sell him, you sell his wife, you sell his children. That's what Roman law stated. You've got a loss, you want to cut your losses, get rid of him. You don't need him anymore, you don't want him anymore. This man in the parable pled, let me correct things. Let me fix it. I'll pay you all that I owe you. His repentance was accepted. Forgiveness was granted. I know you're saying, wow, that amount of money? Yes, Evidently, this master had plenty and to spare. And so he tells him, you are forgiven. The text tells us that he finds a fellow servant, someone on his own level, who owes him a hundred denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. So we're talking about a hundred days wages. If you just use the the formula that a lot of people use today, a hundred dollars a day, and he owes him a hundred days wages. Doesn't take you long to fill out to realize this is not an insignificant amount of money, but in comparison, not much at all. It is a payable debt, one that could be paid. He too pled for patience. He too repented of his failure to pay. But in this case. Forgiveness is refused, he's rejected, he's thrown in prison, and while you're in prison, you can't pay anything. 
No possibility to do it. His callous behavior was witnessed by the fellow servants. They saw what was going on. They saw the way he was treating his fellow man. And thus, no compassion deserved no compassion. You don't care for people, then why should you expect it? James chapter 2, verse 13, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. You don't show mercy, what should you expect from God? Matthew 7, 2, For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. What measure you use will be measured back to you. Do those verses scare you? They ought to. To say that the same way that I treat my fellow man is the way God's going to treat me, that standard of judgment. No forgiveness, being unforgiven. Matthew 6, 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In verses 14, 15, lest you misunderstand, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, for just a few minutes, I want to think about some things that you and I need to walk away with. Some red flags, if you will. Some caution signs. Don't forget that God wants to forgive man. God does not want to punish anybody. God's attitude is He loves every last one. It's as Hebrews 2.9 says that He by the grace of God tasted of death for every man. Sometimes we're like the Pharisees and we look and say, God, that person's not worth anything. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord's not slack concerning His promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He desires all the men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Don't forget that sin is a debt that you cannot pay. You don't have the ability. You don't have the resources. Someone says, well, what if I give this? You could give everything and you don't have enough. 2 Corinthians 8 9 tells us who did, though. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Oh, there was someone who actually paid the debt for us. It was Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, talks about this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for his sins, sat down at the right hand of God, His and His alone was the only thing that could forgive our sins. The third caution in all of this 
is to not forget repentance's place in forgiveness. Do you remember that this man who owed so much, he got out on his knees and he begged. He pleaded. I'm sorry for what I have done. Luke 17, verse 3. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and seven times in the day returns and saying to you, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. Repentance involves a person being made aware of their debt. Part of my job in preaching the gospel is for all of us to see the debt we owe and our inability to pay. Don't forget that God expects us to seek a resolution for sin. He's not calling upon us to ignore sin. He's calling upon us to try to address it in our lives. Don't forget that holding a grudge is not an acceptable option. We can't look at someone and say, you know what? They sinned against me and I'm going to hold a grudge against them. And we, say, we won't say I'm holding a grudge, but we'll say I'm not going to forgive them. Verse 35, he said, if from your hearts you don't forgive. Leviticus 19.18 says you shall not Take vengeance, nor bear a grudge against the children of your people. But you shall love your neighbors yourself. I am the Lord. Don't forget that we're to forgive like God has forgiven us. One of the premier passages of the book of Colossians is chapter 3 and verse 13. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Just like God freely, lovingly forgives me, I must forgive others. I want to return to the idea of what takes place. In this parable, the master arrives and he calls his servants together to settle accounts. Every one of us here tonight is going to do that. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us are going to be there. What is fearful, though, is the fact that books will be opened. You know, occasionally, companies and businesses are audited. And those accountants will come and they will open the books... And they will begin to tally the sheets and say, how much money has come in, how much money has gone out, and where did this money go, and how has it been accounted for? 
And all too often it's recognized that someone has been taking money that should not have been taken. And it's exposed when the books were opened. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And then I saw the great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the heaven and the earth fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, the small and the great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. Folks, here's what's going to happen. On the day of judgment, we're all going to be called into account for our lives. And the Bible is going to be opened, the book of life is going to be opened, and the record of our life is going to be opened. What's it going to look like? Is there going to be an entry into the record of your life where it says sin is laid to their charge? The wages of sin is death, Romans 6 and verse 23. But right there written in the blood of Christ, the words forgiven. Forgiven. The books were open for your life right now. Is the word forgiven there? Have you accepted the offer of Jesus Christ and His blood by being baptized for the remission of your sins? If you have not, we're going to sing this invitation song. And I can assure you, while we are pleading with you now, If you don't make proper preparation, you will be pleading before the Lord. And the Lord's answer to you will be, depart from me, you who work iniquity. I never knew you. I don't don't want anyone to be lost. God doesn't want you to be lost. Tonight is the night. Now is the time. If you need to respond, please come as together we stand and sing.